0: Today's episode of Stuff You Missed in History Class is brought to you by Tracker. Tracker is finding more than a million misplaced items each day. Order yours and never lose anything again. Listeners to this show get a free Tracker Bravo with any order. Go to thetracker.com and enter promo code history. The hardest thing you'll ever have to find is their website. Go to thetracker.com right now and enter promo code history for your free Tracker Bravo with any order. Again, that's the tracker.com promo code history. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. We recently were invited to appear on a broadcast of Georgia Public Broadcasting's All Things Considered. And while we were on the roof of our building, which is Ponce City Market, doing that appearance, we met through the radio staff, a historian who knows a whole lot about the history of this building and the Sears Company. Uh, his name is Jerry, and he was gracious enough to come visit Holly in the studio and share some really fun stories about the building where our podcast is headquartered, uh, which started out as a Sears Roebuck building. There's a lot of discussion of Sears as a company through the years and a little bit of wishbook nostalgia for some appropriate holidayness. Yeah, so we'll jump right into my discussion with Jerry Hancock about Sears and the Ponce City Market building. Today, we are lucky enough to have in studio historian and history teacher, Jerry Hancock. Hi, Hello, Jerry. How are you? Just grand. I'm so glad you're here. Yeah,
1: I'm looking forward to it.
0: Um, so first off, so we could kind of talk about who you are, you are a high school history teacher. Yeah,
1: pretty cool job.
0: So first off, thank you for being an educator. Oh, you're very because welcome. Because all the teachers need all of the love, in my opinion. <laughs> but what is that like on a day-to-day basis?
1: Huh. It's um, it's one of those things. You know, it's you, you feel like a cog in the machine. Unfortunately, that's the part of the job that I don't like. I as long as my door is closed and it's just me and my students, I'm happiest. It's the politicians and businessmen and bureaucracy that's out in the hall. That's the part that I don't really have a lot of patience for. Luckily, I'm at a school that performs academically fairly well, and so I have a lot more. Sort of freedom. I don't have people breathing down my back. You know, I was teacher of the year a couple years ago and. Excellent. Congratulations. Thank you. It's been, uh, it's very rewarding job. Um, obviously not monetarily, but (laughs) nobody goes into it for that purpose. But, uh, yeah, it's rewarding. You know, everybody always says, well, why do you do it? And it's, I, I say it's the light bulb. Yeah. That's it. When, when the kid gets it, when it snaps and you see that light bulb come on. There's no trophy or medal or anything that could get to, you know, how rewarding that is. You know, you did something, you brought something to life for this kid and they, they appreciate it at that point, so.
0: Well, and you're shaping the future. I yeah. mean, that's like a weighty, I don't think people always recognize that that's really what teachers no. are doing.
1: And I, and I, I'm very blunt with my students. I'm, I'm very honest with them. I think that's a big part of the rapport that I have with my kids is I shoot them straight. And on that note, I say, you know, you guys will be changing my diapers at some point. (laughs) That's the kind of dedication we're going to need here. And that reality, you know, yeah, maybe not literally, but figuratively speaking, you are going to be taking care of my generation when we get too old and feeble. At least I hope. If I do my job right, you will be there. Correct. And so, yeah, you know, it's the old adage – Think globally but act locally. I just try and follow that every day when I get out of bed and say, "Okay, I might not fix the world's problems, but I can. This little microcosm that I'm a part of is, you know, I'm going to have some positive influence on that." And so, you know, it's easy to get to work, and I have to get up at five every day. Ooh, <laughs> That's part order. of Thank it. you. Five a.m. at work by six thirty.
0: Hats off to you for that. <laughs> uh, so I have to wonder, since we talk about history all the time. What is the biggest challenge for you sort of in the education system, but also just on a one-on-one basis in terms of getting kids to engage with history? Because it does not have a good rap with kids. No, like not it. at
1: all. And you know, luckily these days we don't teach names and dates anymore. It's Hooray! more it's it's more conceptual learning. And so I've always sort of, you know, been a storyteller and I always find some sort of creative way. I think the real key is relevance. You've got to make it relevant to their young mind. And do they really care about these crusty old white guys and yellow pieces of paper from the 1700s? Probably not. But if you can explain that in a way that they understand it's still very impactful on their lives today – then you got something, you know. I mean, I'm teaching 11th grade kids and I'm still using Schoolhouse Rock. <laughs> I, it's timeless. Thank, thank you, you, President Carter. <laughs> you can't go wrong with Bob Doro. I mean, the guy who started it was one of Miles Davis' Miles Davis's session musicians. Yeah. He, you know, co-wrote with Miles Davis and he was brought in at ABC. Some executive's kid was having problems with his multiplication tables. And so Bob Duro come in, he wrote uh, Three is a Magic Number. It's the first one. And brought it to Also the immortalized
0: by De La Soul. <laughs> I mean.
1: Can't go wrong. It's timeless and the kids I still like it.
0: I make that joke about De La Soul, but it speaks to yep. the level of engagement that Schoolhouse Rocks had. It does. And I mean, I still can sing you the Verb song. That's it. I, I love all of those. And they <laughs> they were very soulful. Yep. Like The music writing was excellent.
1: I mean, Etta James Oh, doing, so you know, Suffering Till Suffrage.
0: Yeah. <laughs> does it get oh, any it's, better? No, it does not. For me, it doesn't, uh, which is just wonderful. Now, do kids today love it or are they like this they animation
1: looks weird? They, they wouldn't admit that they love it, but they love it. <laughs> I had two students who were chorus students. They were out for uh, some sort of trip and missed a test last week. And they came in and my son comes to work with me every morning, catches the bus at my school mm-hmm. to go to his school. And he was in there and every morning we have cartoons on and he loves schoolhouse rock, you know, as a seven year old and knows most of the songs. So I had schoolhouse rock on while I'm sort of getting my day started and these two students come in to make up their test. So I had a seven year old and two teenagers all singing schoolhouse rock <laughs> together in unison. And you realize you've had an impact at that point. This is so easy for people to engage. But again, I think making it relevant for kids and, you know, before the economic collapse, 2008, 2009, kids didn't really care about the Great Depression. But let me tell you, (laughs) now that they've seen their family lose their jobs and their homes, they have a new appreciation for it and it's so much easier to teach now because it's so real. It's relevant. They get it. They understand why it's important. And so, you know, those types of things are easy. This being an election year has been Wow. It's amazing to see it. kids in 11th grade be so dedicated to certain ideals. It's, it, it does the heart good. So.
0: Oh, I'm also <laughs> just going to run in my head for the next probably two weeks, a mental image of a, a band of a seven year old and two 16 <laughs> year olds doing a cover of Interplanet Janet. That's, that's just, <laughs> that's it. For me, that's just where we're at. Uh, yeah. We're going to switch gears a little okay. and talk about something you're an expert about. Which is Sears history.
1: That's sort of my thing. Yeah.
0: Uh, which is a fascinating thing to be <clears throat> focused on as a historian. Yeah. How did you first become interested in that subject?
1: Um, when I first went back to college and undergraduate, uh, my first couple of years, I was an English major. And uh, had a professor down at Georgia State, Dr. John Burrison, who's still there, um, who taught a class on Georgia folk life. It was actually part of the English department. And, um, the historical element of that class just had such an impact on me. And I always joke with him that he was the reason that I switched to history. But, um, in studying English and then, <clears throat> excuse me, going into history, I noticed that there were so many mentions of Sears as this integral part of Southern culture. And the company was based out of Chicago. And it amazed me how Southern culture sort of absorbed Sears. It became one of them and could not find any sort of regional studies on Sears. So I started just sort of dabbling in that. After undergraduate, I went straight into the graduate program at Georgia State and um, was trying to come up with an idea for a master's thesis. And one of my colleagues said, uh, well, you better make it something you love or you're going to hate it. <laughs> That was good advice, and I said, "Okay, well." And there was—I have been a—I've been collecting Star Wars action figures since 1978,
0: and a one man of, after my yeah, heart.
1: One of my favorite action figures was the Blue Snaggletooth that was only available in the Sears Wish Book. That was the thing, and I said, "Well, that's it." You know, yeah. it's Sears. It's It's sort of what I like. Maybe I can just do this Sears thing because I, you know, like I said, I've been collecting nuggets through, you know, the different English classes and and history classes that I've been taking at Georgia State. So I I decided to go that direction, and you know, it uh, it really blossomed. I came into this building the first time in two thousand five. The interesting about interesting thing about it was is that when the city of Atlanta bought this property in nineteen ninety one. The maintenance team that had worked this property years under Sears came with the building.
0: Oh, I did not know that. So they
1: had this group of guys, uh, a gentleman by the name of Jim Ricketts and his crew, sort of changed hands with the property. And they knew every square inch of this building. And uh, one of his crew members, who will remain, remain, remain nameless, uh, I promised I'd, I'd never mention <laughs> his name because <laughs> they were so concerned that, oh, oh, my God, it was Sears might take my retirement. Right. Because they've got such an amazing retirement or or did back in those days through the profit sharing program. And so he took me around the building and up into the tower and all back when the city still owned it. And uh, that sort of became a big part of my interest as this package of regional study. And I ended up going to Hoffman Estates to Sears corporate offices up there mm-hmm. on two different occasions just to do research. Uh, with an incredible archivist by the name of Arlene May, who's no longer with the company because in their constant downsizing and right. trimming, uh, I think she, she was laid off in 2009. Uh, but I, I went, I did a trip in 2005 and in 07 and basically just sort of took that as a, a barometer. Anything to do with southern culture, agriculture, and found a wealth of information about the old farmers market here on the back lot and, um, you know, some of the different programs that they had in place to help farmers, particularly in the South, because the South was, you know, still struggling in this sort of post-reconstruction period where they're trying to economically and industrially catch up with the rest of the nation. Mm-hmm. And Sears came in at just that right moment, Um, what was known as the Forward Atlantic Campaign in the mid-20s. And uh they had already researched the area and – uh the third president of the company, General Robert E. Wood, he came in and understood that the automobile was central to this new face that Sears – the old mail order Sears was now turning into this new retail Sears and he was a big part of that transition. And so I decided to focus on this building and everything that it sort of represented and it was like peeling an onion. It just got deeper and deeper <laughs> finding you know these different industrial investments that Sears made in hundreds of factories in the southeast so that they could – eliminate the transportation costs. They were buying from local manufacturers and selling to local customers. They operated in what was called the territorial system. The country was divided into five territories and each one sort of operated autonomously. So they were much more engaged with the people of the region they served, their wants, their needs. And uh, I think giving them that autonomy really – uh, helped Sears sort of reach out to their market in the region and I think was sort of the reason it became so beloved in the culture.
0: I love it. And you, uh, spoke about this building and for our listeners that may not know, the building we are sitting in, which is called Ponce City Market now, uh, is a historical building. It yeah. was at one point the, um, the Sears Roebuck building. Yeah. And we're going to talk about that and a whole lot more about Sears history and this property's history. But first we are going to pause and have a word from one of our sponsors. That sponsor is Carnivore Club, which is a cured meat of the month club that delivers right to your door. Yummy, delicious things, I can tell you from experience. Uh, you don't have to be that boring person who gives people gifts that are either last minute or like the gift you just couldn't find the right gift situation. Uh, don't do that. Instead, you could give a gift that people are talking about that is the gift of Cured meats. Carnivore Club is the world's first subscription service dedicated to delivering premium cured meats right to your door. They are handcrafted by local artisans for a one-of-a-kind taste experience uniting meat lovers everywhere i certainly loved my box i joked with producer noel that it was like getting a parcel of delicious pork candy <laughs> because it was all so yummy so carnivore club has both one time gift orders and long term subscriptions available and if you go to carnivoreclub.co now and place your order using promo code history you're going to get 15% off so Head to CarnivoreClub.co to discover the latest and greatest on offer from the only club for true meat lovers. Use promo code HISTORY and get 15% off. It is the best Christmas present idea you have ever gotten from a podcast. First, I have to ask you, because we always, always, always get asked about how we research and what our research tips are. So I'm wondering what your tips might be for people who are interested in corporate history in terms of how they can start digging into a company's past and finding all of the little yummy gems.
1: Okay. Um I can't say that it was an easy experience and I think a large part of that was, you know, not only the the corporate aspects of of researching but the fact that Sears is downsizing rapidly, uh, some would say imploding. <laughs> and so that has made it very difficult, not only in the research aspects, because as I mentioned before, they had an archivist out there at Hoffman Estates, and she was the one that maintained the Sears history website. If you've ever been on there, she maintained that, kept up with literally hundreds of emails a day from all over the world coming in, asking questions about this corporate juggernaut and she was such a steward of the history of the company and i don't even know that she came from a history background but she certainly appreciated that and then shortly after they hired her was the acquisition between sears and kmart so mm-hmm. not only do you have one archivist for this century old company but now she's the archivist for sear or for kmart as well and so she's got these two corporate entities that she's trying to curate I can't even imagine the stress of that job. (laughs) But it's also (laughs) cool, (laughs) right? It is so cool. I mean, you know, she – my first trip up, she really wowed me because I sort of gave her an idea and she ran with it. And I walk into the archives and she's got, you know, three roller carts full of boxes. And on top of one of them is a leather-bound ledger that Richard Sears and Alva Roebuck used to keep the books in.
0: Oh, my gosh.
1: And as the rumor has it, Richard Sears was a very fly by the seat of your pants kind of guy. (laughs) And it was certainly apparent in this ledger with, you know, marks and scratches and X's on pages. It, it was a very chaotic way of business. Uh, Richard Sears was, he's been called Barnum-esque in his salesmanship, sort of the, you know, the P.T. Barnum of the retail and mail order world. And he really did, it was all about the wow factor. He would, you know, place an ad in one of the catalogs for a pair of men's suit pants for a dollar fifty and would take in thousands of orders without even having the product on hand. (laughs) And then he scrambles around Chicago looking for manufacturers to get this product made as rapidly as possible because he's got thousands of orders on standby waiting for it. That was the kind of business practices that he engaged in. Well, One of the the men that he uh, started working with was the second president of the company, Julius Rosenwald, who uh, was a Jewish merchant in Chicago and was dealing with one of these frantic orders that Richard Sears needed filled, and um, he actually – uh, first met with Rosenwald's cousin who invented the pneumatic tube system.
0: Oh, cool. In
1: factories and plants around the country and he was trying to get Sears to use this as a way to sort of streamline uh, taking in and filling their orders. And um, Rosenwald sort of came in as part investor in this thing uh, as Alva Roebuck was sort of exiting the building. And we'll come back to him. He's got an interesting story Excellent. as well. But uh, Rosenwald came in and he was sort of the, the human element of the company. He took Richard Sears' sort of grandiose style and sort of tried to make it uh, a little more fluid and taking filling orders but also sort of reaching out to people. This was in the early 20th century as the progressive era is first starting to move. And uh, Rosenwald was getting on up in years in philanthropy like many millionaires mm-hmm. at the time. Philanthropy became a hobby. And it was through his philanthropy that I think Sears really sort of cemented its relationship, particularly with the South. Uh, Rosenwald was responsible for starting the Sears Agricultural Foundation, which uh, really did a lot of things through Atlanta specifically, uh, like the farmer's market that I mentioned earlier. Uh, but he also worked directly with Booker T. Washington and Tuskegee Institute uh, with not only cash donations but merchandise donations for the students at Tuskegee uh, and started working through Booker T. Washington uh, and establishing uh, funding to start schools for African-American children in the Southeast. And it started off as uh, an initial investment on the part of Rosenwald and started four schools and within 15 years, uh, bloomed to almost 5,000 schools in the Southeast, uh, became known as the Rosenwald Schools. And, you know, Even though it's very hard to track that information, it was very aware of the people they were serving that this man was with Sears. And from some of the stuff that I've read, a lot of people thought it was Mr. Sears because he was – he's like Santa Claus at this point, Mr. Sears. (laughs) And so I think that uh, Rosenwald was very conscious of this image and when Sears, Richard Sears leaves the the company uh, in the 19-teens, Rosenwald was very careful to keep that quiet. He wanted that persona. He kept his transition of power very quiet, but nonetheless, he's coming to the Southeast and starting these schools, and people realize, okay, this guy's with Sears Roebuck. I'm certain because of the nature of Jim Crow South at the time, this gives African Americans in the Southeast some degree of uh, autonomy, uh, some degree of, of secrecy. Now they can buy the same thing that anybody else can buy, and all they have to do is order it through this catalog. They don't have to deal with racist merchants in town right. and those types of things. And I, I genuinely believe that, uh, like I say, even though it's very hard to track, uh, I'm sure African Americans in the Southeast were dedicated Sears customers through most of the 20th century because of the contributions of part of Julius Rosenwald. So,
0: I had never thought about how mail order allowed people to sidestep yep. prejudice. That's it. That's amazing. So
1: you've got these people and that was the thing. You know, you hear stories of African-Americans dealing with merchants in town and they're only shown the cheapest items uh, and not, no customer service to speak of. Sears has a 100% money back guarantee. We'll send it to you if it doesn't work. Send it back and we'll send you something else. Right. And You know, again, it, it gave them some degree of privacy and, and what, items they were buying for their families.
0: I'm I'm just soaking that in because it's a really – it's an amazing connection I never once would have thought of, Uh, which almost maybe supplants the question I was going to ask next, which is what is sort of the most surprising little gem you've encountered in your Sears scholarship?
1: Um, Really just how much interest Sears had in the South. Uh, Again, the third president of the company who came in after Rosenwald – actually Rosenwald hired – Uh, Robert E. Wood. Robert E. Wood was uh, an acquisitions manager in the Panama Canal project. He was in the military, which is why they called him general. And basically that was his job was seeking out huge quantities of raw materials uh, for the purposes of these large construction projects. And so it sort of made him perfect for Sears in acquiring – raw materials and manufactured goods at a very budget price so that they could turn a profit. And he came in, he actually worked for Montgomery Ward originally. And the turn of the 20th century, I think he saw the promise of the automobile and the change in the retail environment and was trying to push Ward to do more retail. And Ward said, no, we're a mail order company. We're going to dance with the one that brung us. And, uh, Finally fired Robert Wood because he would not back <laughs> off of this retail thing and as soon as uh, Rosenwald got word of this, he immediately hired him at Sears and uh, right out of the bat, set up the territory system in North America with the five territories and this sort of autonomous uh, way of doing business in each of the territories um, and uh, started this whole retail craze. Uh, he was a big proponent of what he called ample free parking. And so when Sears would open a store like the one that was started here on Ponce de Leon, they would look for an area on the edge of town that was accessible, but land was still cheap, and they could have access to this ample free parking because he knew that the automobile was the wave of the future. And look what happened. Oh, (laughs) my goodness. So so far ahead of his time, I think, in in sort of understanding the direction of retail and what it was doing at that moment.
0: Well, especially when you think about the regional model, which has been – I mean, yep. perpetuated throughout
1: <laughs>
0: all kinds of retail mm-hmm. and sales across the country for yep. decades since.
1: And I'm, I'm pretty certain he was at least one of the originators of that practice. It, uh, you know, I, like I said earlier, I think it just gives the management within the company in those regions a little more. I mean, they were very engaged in the Chamber of Commerce and community service right. and these types of things. And Atlanta was certainly no exception. Um once they came to Atlanta, obviously, you know, they opened this plant in 1926. Um, the original structure was 750,000 square feet. And the first thing they did for the opening ceremonies was uh, Sears had just a couple years prior uh, acquired a radio station based out of Chicago, WLS, which call letters stood for world's largest store. And <laughs> – they were sort of on the the brink, on the edge, cutting edge of of radio technology, and started going to smaller uh, stations in different regions. in WSB, uh, they WLS actually leased airtime from WSB. WSB brought a transmitter to the tower in this building, and uh, not only broadcast live from the tower for the opening ceremonies and the flag ra- uh, raising on the tower and all those things, but continued to maintain a relationship for the next few years. Um, in uh, radio programming and what ultimately gave birth to country music as we know it today. Oh,
0: it's to take in. <laughs> it's all, I mean, it's it's like gem after gem. Uh, uh, and you are also in the midst of working on a book about this property. Yes. About the building that we are literally sitting in right now, which yes. again, I, I mentioned the name earlier. It's Pont City Market. Will you talk a little bit about that project? Because you and I talked about it a little bit, but yeah.
1: it sounds amazing. It, well, once you know I did my master's thesis through Georgia State, and they still host that actually it's available online. Um, we will and,
0: put it in the show notes sure sure yeah, yeah. Um,
1: it's uh it's sort of academic and it's got some places that are a little stuffy, but the second and third chapters in particular have been very popular uh, with folks who has been thousands of downloads of it. Uh, the second chapter is primarily looking at the regional business through this plant, and then the third chapter is more of an oral history element. Um, as I mentioned before, my mentor at Georgia State was Cliff Kuhn, who was responsible for relocating the uh, American um, Oral History Association of America. Uh, their uh, archives are at Georgia State now. He brought uh-huh. that there and is one of the great oral historians uh, used to host a number of uh, episodes of this day in history on uh, Georgia public broadcasting and was aware of a lot of these things, just little pieces. So he was, he was central in helping me sort of get these things together, making connections. Um, and so obviously the oral history part is there, not only uh, interviews with, with former employees, regional employees and oral histories that I collected in Chicago, but also, uh, I've, one of the big things that I found in Chicago on my first visit was a, a box full of correspondence from different customers in the southeast. And it is some of the funniest <laughs> – literally sitting in the archives cackling, <laughs> tears running down my face, uh, some of the things that these people – they really did. They saw Richard Sears as Santa Claus. Right. They wrote in looking for a wife. Uh, they, yeah, they wrote in, <laughs> one man wrote in about his child. He had ordered, uh, something from the patent medicine section that was apparently marketed as birth control
0: oh and
1: ordered two tubes of it. And now he has a, uh, a, a seven pound baby girl and he calls it his ba- Sears baby <laughs> and thinks that Sears owes her, uh, at least a blanket or something. Right. Uh, you know, just some of the funniest things, um, and so that's in the third chapter of the thesis. But that certainly was sort of the the nucleus of how this thing started to unravel. Um, the people of Jamestown, when they bought the property, had found my research and just dug into it. And coincidentally, uh, another sort of local neighborhood cheerleader, uh, was head of the Old Fourth Ward Association, Kit Sutherland. She lives right across the street. Uh, Kit uh, basically reached out to me and helped get me in contact with Jamestown. This was in 2011 when they bought the property, and they brought me in. Uh, They had the party at Potts, which Mm -hmm. was in the back parking lot with the Indigo Girls and Sean Mullins. They brought me in to lead some of the tours, and I just got such a response. People are so interested in the history of this building because it's become such an institution here in Atlanta. You know, all the years that I've driven by this building, we've come to pay our speeding tickets or get our cars (laughs) out of impound or... Whatever the case may be. And so there was such an interest and it just really started to take off. And I continued working with Jamestown sort of as a historical consultant and provided a lot of photography. I was on an elevator coming up here earlier and there's a picture on the elevator that I found in my research in Chicago. So it's been sort of surreal to watch this whole thing open up. Well, I sort of found uh, uh, a partner in crime, uh a local photographer by the name of Blake Burton. Mm-hmm. Uh, Blake is a graduate from Georgia Tech in architecture And he graduated in 2009 just as the market began to tank and was hired. Just when you want to have an architecture degree. And he was – somehow he had just moved up the street to an apartment so he could get to classes at Georgia Tech and uh, got hired as an asset manager for the city of Atlanta. And this was the building he worked in. And so he came in in the fall of 2009 uh, just casually on his breaks, taking his camera around the building and taking pictures of what – this look like
0: so. Just for um, context for listeners that don't know, this building went through a period where it was owned by the city yeah. and was <laughs> like a, a government building. Where, as you said, you would come and pay your tickets. Yeah. Uh, it's had a lot of wacky things in it at various points in yeah. time. But just for a heads up, that is why. He no. was hired by the government. Yeah, he was And then was in. working here in this building. Well, the interesting
1: thing was, is when City Hall East was in this building, they only occupied about 20% of the total structure. The other 80% sat like, uh, like a time capsule almost. Yeah. Uh, I remember walking into the maintenance offices down in the basement where the old electrical room used to be and, uh, just find blueprints of the property from the 1940s just randomly laying out on tables. Um, I remember at one point when I was doing the tours for Jamestown in 2011, walked over into what looked like sort of a storage area behind uh, one of the circuit breakers and found a receipt and a wiring diagram for the old popcorn machine that used to be oh at the candy counter just laying on the floor randomly. I mean it literally was like a time capsule. And it was so awesome to be able to walk through this building in those dark corners that people probably hadn't gone in in years um but Blake starts taking photographs of this and documenting it and then when Jamestown bought the property uh he spoke with uh the folks at Jamestown and got permission to come back into the building every 2 to 3 months and continue what turned into a, a sort of a visual documentary of the transition from this sort of, you know, junk storage and, you know, cheesy 1960s wood paneling right. in certain places to this mixed-use Nexus on the east side of Atlanta and documented, uh, in fact, the last photograph uh, that he took was from the top of the bar looking down on the amusement park on the roof. That's the final page of it. And it it's just been amazing. And so he reached out to me. He actually had had um, uh, an art exhibit uh, back here where the Auto Center used to be in one of those spaces next to Dancing Goats uh, and had his stuff on exhibit there for about a month. And uh, one day I get this email and he's like, so I hear you're the history guy. <laughs> and I was like, well, it sort of certainly seems that way lately. <laughs> he said, well, I'm doing this book and I would really like to document the history of this property. And so what I did was sort of took you know, the basis of my research for my master's thesis and sort of took out the stuffy academic aspects of it and made it a little more user-friendly – uh, and certainly, you know, supplemented areas where I had a lot of people ask questions before and uh, sort of tried to get this, you know, uh, essay uh, that sort of captured the evolution of this property from before, you know, the Sears plant was even here back when the old Pasta Leon Amusement Park was here. And from that time, basically through the Sears transition, through the City Hall East transition to the time that, that Jamestown took control of the property and sort of, you know, initiates this renaissance of the building and it's been it's been a great ride it's really been fun
0: i can imagine uh we are going to talk some more about the building and sears but first we're going to pause once again for a little sponsor break so the holidays are really almost here and you probably like us do not have a lot of time to go to the post office what with all the traffic and the parking and the walking all the way there if you're like me Uh, it will be packed with everyone else who's all mailing their holiday gifts and their packages, so you can use stamps.com instead. With Stamps.com, you can avoid all the hassle of going to the post office during this busy, busy holiday season. Everything you would do at the post office, you can instead do right from your desk. You can buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer. Print postage for any letter or package the instant you need it, and then just hand it off to the person who delivers your mail. It is easy and convenient. Right now, sign up for Stamps.com and use our promo code STUFF for this special offer. That's a four-week trial, plus a $110 bonus offer, including postage and a digital scale. So, don't wait. Go to Stamps.com, and before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in STUFF. That's Stamps.com, and enter STUFF. So we are back to our discussion. And uh one of the things that comes up a lot on our show is pronunciation. So here in Atlanta, we say Ponce de Leon. Mm-hmm. That's not really the way you would have pronounced it if you were him. Uh, <laughs> and to Atlanta residents, though, that is a very common name. Mm-hmm. Uh, a busy road that serves as one of the city's mm-hmm. major arteries is called Ponce de Leon. <laughs> and... uh what they may not know, although it's it's become more common knowledge because of, like, your work, in part, uh, establishing the history of this property, uh, <laughs> is that this property is a big reason why Ponce de Leon is a big part of Atlanta.
1: It is. It is. Uh, in the 1860s, uh, as they were laying what is now the Beltline, uh, the rail corridor uh, that was between this building and the neighboring building across the way, uh, the Ford factory. Um, When they were building and laying that bed, they found uh, just at the northeast corner of this building, there's actually a service drive. If you're looking at the front of Pont City Market, Mm -hmm. all the way to the left, in between the edge of the building and the the neighboring uh, rail bed where the belt line is located, uh, they found two freshwater springs that came out of the side of that hill. Uh, The spouts, uh, best of my knowledge, were about three feet apart. And they knew for a fact that they came from two separate sources because one side uh, was colder and one side had more of a sulfur smell. (laughs) (laughs) A local Atlanta doctor found that the rail workers had been drinking this spring water uh, for its health benefits uh, and eventually started bottling the water and selling it here in Atlanta. Uh, eventually, the property was sold to a local businessman by the name of John Armistead, the Atlanta Street Railway Company, and that was in 1886. He sold the property. Uh, they were interested in the property because it was at the far eastern end of the eastbound trolley line, and they wanted something at the end of the line to encourage riders to go all the way to the end, and this property – Sat there, uh, so it's the intersection of the airline railway, mm-hmm. which is now the Beltline, and the old trolley line that used to run parallel to Ponta Leon, all the way out almost to Decatur. And, um, they, uh, at the time was just pastoral gardens, and people would come out, you know, back in the old days of courting. Uh, <laughs> you would take the trolley line out and would court your, your lovely lady around the gardens at, uh, Ponce de Leon uh, Park and eventually uh, in the uh, late 1890s, they opened an amusement park uh, called Ponce de Leon Amusement Park. This is around the time uh, that um, – So
0: we should mention that the name was chosen because we thought because it was a of, fountain of youth. Yeah, they thought the it was
1: the fountain of youth uh, and so the, supposedly these, these springs had restorative properties to them. And so people would come out on Sundays and walk around the park and would get a sip of this rank sulfur water <laughs> because supposedly it was good for them and had these healing properties. Well, uh, in time, they opened the amusement park and more and more people began to come to the area. And this is just prior to, you know, obviously the the automobile becoming common. Um by the early 20th century, the automobile starts to come into play, certainly by the 1920s. The park is going into disrepair. There was uh, uh, a group of gypsies that lived on the property. Uh, it, it, it was sort of becoming an eyesore, although business was still popping up. They opened the the old ballpark, uh, Spiller Field, across the street. Uh, the uh, Obviously, the Ford plant was already here. Um, and at the time, Sears was looking for property. That, as I mentioned earlier, sort of the edge of town where they could buy property for fairly inexpensive, but they wanted that transportation artery. And it really was the perfect fit for Sears because not only do you have the rail line, the airline railway outside uh, to bring in and ship these items, but you also have the trolley line, which was a main means of transportation uh, as the automobile sort of coming about. So Sears starts looking at the property, the best of my knowledge, uh, in the ni- about ni- uh, 1925. And in December of 1925, announced uh, officially that they were going to open a Sears Roebuck uh, warehouse and retail store on the property. And so uh, uh, January 4th, 1926, they broke ground. And six months later, Ooh. they opened a three-quarter million <laughs> square foot <laughs> facility. They were working three shifts a day, 24 hours a day, seven days a week for six months. They had done or constructed another Sears plant uh, in Kansas City that had been completed just a few months prior. And so they really had worked out how to make this thing, put it together quickly. Uh, It was almost the exact same floor plans. And so they built this. They paved over the springs, diverted it actually under the property uh, and used to actually run off underneath North Avenue and was diverted back to what was the parking lot at Masquerade once upon a time. Now it's Old Fourth Ward Park. And so that water runs off through there. It was uh, this underground aquifer. Um, I do know that in 2005, there was another developer looking at the property. His name is Emery Morseberger. Uh, Mr. Morseberger is the one who redeveloped downtown Lawrenceville. Right. And he was looking to buy the property, basically turn it into condos. Um, he had a daughter who was disabled, and he wanted to make this the most wheelchair-friendly facility in the city and uh, put a healthy sum as a down payment, somewhere in excess of a million dollars on the property. And as they begin looking, um, right across Glen Iris, uh, there's some condos there now that used to be a dry cleaners. And in all the years of operation of the dry cleaners, some of the chemicals that they used leached down into the soil under the property and polluted the aquifer. And so then it's this environmental issue. And just about that time, the market starts to collapse. And, of yeah. course, condos go down the toilet. And Morseburger, it was like the hot potato. He couldn't get it out of his hands fast enough. Yeah, well, because
0: it's really expensive (laughs) to address those kind of issues. I mean, I I I know it happened a lot in Atlanta. That is not the only story I know of someone Mm. that was interested in a property and then found out that it had some chemical issue and was going to have to have a lot of expensive cleanup. And then right at that time, everything kind of went dry for a bit where there was just no development. So (laughs) that's not that unusual. We're going to come back to the Sears building sure. in its debut. But before that, I wanted to ask you, and you kind of accidentally got onto it a little bit, uh, talking about how uh, the catalog business sort of opened up some avenues for black people to be able to make purchases uh, without having to deal with racism. But there are some moments in this building's past that are problematic and they are a big part of America's racist history. Mm -hmm. And I know we have always kind of run into like that. Please don't look when we talk to people that worked on the development about like, can we talk about the fact that that amusement park wouldn't let anyone of color in, Uh, do you run into
1: that problem? uh, I've seen a lot of questions about it. There's one, uh, postcard image that is very clear, uh, that the swings on the property, uh, had a sign that said whites only, uh, the only others that could use it were black servants. That was obviously a big part of it. I mean, this is the Jim Crow era of mm-hmm. the South and is, you know, as liberal as Atlanta can be at times, it's still very much in the heart of the South. Yeah. Um, and there were a lot of challenging issues over the years, I think, with Sears. Uh, obviously, you know, segregated facilities, restrooms, cafeterias, and things of that nature. Uh, all the way up till 1971, Hosea Williams is protesting, you know, uh, racist hiring practices at Sears Roebuck. So, yeah, there's a lot of, of, of a sort of, uh, sort of undertone and things that I get a lot of questions about. Uh, there is one particular sort of urban myth that, that, uh, Alva Roebuck was at least part African-American and that's – best of my understanding and my research is not true Uh, and I think a big part of that is probably because of the role that Rosenwald played Mm -hmm. with Booker T. Washington. It was very high profile and from some of the interviews that I've read with corporate executives uh, with Sears at the time they opened this plant that um, there was some concern on the part of the white population in the south. Uh, they thought that Sears was a black company. And again, I think a lot of that probably came out of this sort of high-profile philanthropy that w- Rosenwald was doing through uh, black communities throughout the region. And uh, to some degree, uh, Sears was very conscious about bringing and establishing public relations offices in the Atlanta plant to sort of get help get past that. And so there were always the questions, well, is one of the men black? Um, and in fact, uh, if you know the story of Alva Roebuck, he left the company in 1895, cited a bad case of nerves, and dealing with Richard Sears sort of fly by the (laughs) sea, pants business style. Roebuck had been hired when Richard Sears was just a a watch catalog. Uh, Richard Sears, you know, was a railroad agent and had worked in, uh, Minnesota and accidentally got a shipment of pocket watches because, you know, in the 19th century, Railroad helped standardize time and so pocket watches became a necessity. And so it was this shipment of mail order pocket watches that came through the station. No one claimed it. And so Richard Sears says, I'll buy it. And he sells these watches and turns uh, about an $8,000 profit selling these watches <laughs> up and down the railroads to his buddies who worked in the stations. And so it started as this watch catalog. And Alva Roebuck was a watch repairman. So he brought him in and had, of course, in legendary Richard Sears style, the sort of grandiose guarantee, lifetime guarantee on these watches. The best of my knowledge, they weren't the best watches in the world. But <laughs> if it broke and you had the patience to send it off for probably months and months to Chicago, Alva Roebuck would fix your watch and send it back to you. And so he stayed with the company until 1895. He leaves because he's just a nervous wreck trying to work with Richard Sears. And eventually takes his portion of the company and uh, invests in uh, the typewriter industry. He ends up working for Emerson typewriters and uh, had basically gone into an early retirement in Florida when the Great Depression kicked in and lost everything. And eventually in the 1930s, went to Chicago, had to go back to work, and went and stood in an unemployment line at the Sears (laughs) factory in Chicago. And he goes – in for the interview and they ask his name. He says, well, it's on the front of the building. I'm Alva Roebuck. And so they hired him to sort of write letters to customers, sort of a public relations capacity and eventually started touring him around the country as sort of a glad hander for special events. And they sent him to the south to multiple locations to show the region he's not black. <laughs> and so oh, that was the capacity that uh, Roebuck served. Um, you know, I, I talked to a number of African-American employees who worked at Sears during those years of transition, during the civil rights movement where the segregated signs were slowly removed and things were integrated uh, without very very much fanfare. They really tried to stay below the radar with that kind of thing, but uh, still a lot of dedication. Even the black employees, they genuinely loved Sears. They loved what Sears provided. Uh, there's an old... Sort of legend that there was uh, an elevator operator, a black elevator operator at the Memphis facility, uh, which is obviously right on the Mississippi River, uh, and he operated an elevator in that building for 30-plus years, and it is said he retired a millionaire. Because for every dollar he would invest in his share, Sears profit sharing, they would match that dollar. Right. And, uh, they were you know, stories. The decades. Yeah, stories of employees. This is when, you know, you could establish yourself in a career with this company and it could really do great things for you. And, and I know, uh, for a fact, in speaking with some of these, uh, former employees, uh, who are still very active. In fact, Atlanta has the largest, uh, active Retiree chapter in the country. They're called the Sears Atlanta family. I still uh, work with them occasionally. I've interviewed a number of employees that worked in this plant and the stories they tell are just fascinating and sort of seeing that firsthand account of what it used to be like to work in this giant building and how close people were. You know, stories of snowstorms where they would be trapped in the building overnight and the next morning they would open the cafeteria and do like mess hall-style breakfast for all the employees. <laughs> they were really just a tight-knit family and they still are very close today. You've got these people in their 80s and their 90s and they just just the salt of the earth. You know, they love the company that they work for. They're not real happy about the direction it's gone in recent years, but they, they're very dedicated people uh, and I, I've seen that in – All, you know, socioeconomic classes and races of people who worked here, they they genuinely loved what they did uh, and what Sears sort of stood for in the region.
0: Uh, So now we'll backtrack a little bit and talk about the building on the day it opened. Okay, Uh, Because I had read – a little factoid, that there were 30,000 people on hand. Is that
1: true? That seems enormous. It, it was not in line that morning. There are some pictures from that day of the front of the building and the lines and the throngs of people standing outside the front. That was the total number of bodies that came in the building in that first opening day. Gotcha. It's not like there were 30,000 people, you know, lined up constantly <laughs> on to get in. But, you know, they had somewhere in the neighborhood of 35,000 items on display in that retail facility uh, down on the first floor. And, uh, you know, for folks who've lived in Atlanta very long, the old service merchandise, you would go in, say, I want that one. Right. They would give you a ticket. You would go to a counter, and somebody else behind, you know, the curtain would bundle that order and bring it to the counter for you. And that was the way it worked here at Sears. They, uh, Folks could go in through the retail section, and Sears was known for having three different levels of quality, they had the economic, then they had sort of the middle, and then they had the really nice one. And so they would keep three of most all of these items, particularly things like appliances and tools and things that Sears sort of became known for. People would come in and they would say, okay, I want this and this. They would take the tickets to a counter and they would literally, um, the way this building is set up, there are these huge corkscrew turnstiles. There used to be a couple on the outside of the building and then there were two within the building itself. And they connected all of the floors, and it basically was a giant chute that went down to the shipping room. What is today the front facade of Ponce City Market with the, the living roof, that was the shipping room. And they would – all of these conveyor belts and chutes and they all the things from the different floors would spiral down, and somebody at the bottom and these stalls would collect the items. They would come through the chute. They would bundle the order, and it would either go to the front of the store for the retail or it would go to the loading dock in the back and be put on the train to be shipped out all over the region. And that was sort of the way they filled them. You know, they had operators over in the tower and you could call directly to the tower and say, "Okay, in your new catalog on this page, you've got this item. I'd like three of these, you know, and then they would send that order to the different floors. They would fill that order and collect it and bundle it in the the shipping room.
0: So what was the building itself like?
1: Um, Compared to now. At the time, yeah, the bottom floor was a cafeteria. Basement floor was a giant cafeteria. And then the first floor would have been the retail space. The second, third – actually, the second through ninth floors of the main structure was pretty much just all merchandise. Uh, you had things like kids' toys on the ninth floor. You would have things like appliances and hardware. And heavier items would be obviously a little closer to the bottom floor. And uh you know, during the first few years of operation of the building, uh, the terrace across what is today the front of Pont City Market, mm-hmm. uh, that was the old original rail bed. It's connected via a bridge out to the Beltline now. Uh, they would pull as many as 16 rail cars across the back of the building, and they would literally bundle it and load it onto the train. Uh, that was the case until uh, the mid-'60s. They started a huge wave of development. They knocked down the old original smokestack. And they constructed the wing that uh, sits right across the street from the masquerade there on North Avenue. That was the 67 wing. Right. And then there were three floors on the far end that weren't there originally in 1970. They built those additional three floors to finish that wing out. When they did that, they scrapped the rail line, buried it in concrete, and built a cafeteria, a new cafeteria that was open to the public. And, uh, built that across the back of the building and rerouted all of the trains up the side of the building and what is the shed on the side of the property right. today that Pon City Market has developed. That was the second loading dock and they could pull more train cars up to that and, and load those items. But, uh, yeah, it was an amazing operation. It, it was almost like two different companies in one. You would have, the mail order aspect of the company, and then right. you would have the retail portion of the company. And in talking to the employees, they've always been very particular about, oh well I was retail or I was mail order, uh I worked with catalog is is what they'll say. Um, <laughs> the the terminology is interesting. They refer to this building as the plant, the right. pots plant. Uh, and it 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 really was just amazing to to see it. There's actually a collection of employee It was more of a newsletter. It was almost like a magazine, uh, for employees of the Sears plant. Uh, it was started 1951 on the 25th anniversary of the opening of the plant. It was called Mail Order Graph. And it was like, you know, pictures of kids and their Cub Scouts. Right. Again, that whole family thing was there. It was pictures of the cafeteria staff, the ladies that ran the cafeteria at the time, or the laundry. Uh, They would do these different uh, write-ups, so-and-so's moving away, and they would have going-away parties, and just a lot of very personal pictures. Uh, I found an entire collection that went from 1951 through about 1978, I believe it was. They have it on uh, hand at University of Georgia in their special collections facility out there, and I've gone out there multiple times collecting information, images and stuff for Jamestown uh, to use in various capacities and it's just so fun to look through those because you really see what this building was in its prior life. You know, I didn't move to the city till nineteen ninety one and obviously that was the year Sears sort of shuttered everything and sold it to the city but um it uh it it really gives sort of a pulse. To yeah. the previous life of the building and the people that worked in it and how close they were, uh, what Atlanta meant to, or, you know, what Sears meant to it, the Atlanta market.
0: Uh, I, I will ask you a question. I'm going off track a little bit because I remember finding in, uh, when I was do- doing a little bit of prep, a note from the 1943 internal little mailer paper. Mm-hmm. Uh, A note about Sears being aware that their catalogs would one day be looked at by historians Uh, as the, um, you know, sort of the record of American life at the time. It is.
1: Absolutely. I I, have
0: never heard of a company that was quite that self-aware from a historical perspective. I don't
1: know that Richard Sears himself was quite that aware. Again, he was a huckster. You know, he was a snake oil salesman. But I do think... That Julius Rosenwald and certainly Robert Wood were conscious of sort of nurturing. This is before image, corporate image right. was a thing. They sort of, I think, helped to create and nurture that in this, this image of the catalog and you know, how it reached out to, to rural farmers in particular. But, you know, even here in, in the urban areas where they're reaching out to, uh, a more urban market. But, uh, but yeah, I think, I think from at least by the mid 20th century, they were certainly aware that this was sort of a historical, you know, repository of yeah. things, of stuff. And, and that's one thing about our culture, you know, is we love stuff in this country. Oh, we yeah. define ourselves by stuff. And they were, I think, really aware of how people define themselves with the things that they bought and, uh, you know, even in utilitarian things like cream separators and sewing <laughs> machines and these you know things that again you know I I mentioned to you at uh, the Georgia Public Broadcasting uh broadcast that we uh were talking about how the the catalog and the items in it uh what it represented to people having those items um you know, I I teach that in my classes now. Yeah. Uh, we actually do. It's a pretty fun activity I do with my students, where I give them a list of drugs because <laughs> there's one thing <laughs> teenagers are interested in is <laughs> drugs, and what they. Potential side effects are what they might be used for, and we would take. I, I give the kids old copies. Uh, this is before the Pure Food and Drug Act was right. passed. Looking at patent medicines. Oh
0: yeah. Because
1: that was the thing about patent medicines. It could have secret ingredients, and it was usually illicit drugs. Right. I mean, you had farmers getting addicted to cocaine yeah. in the nineteen teens, and so my kids go through and scour these ads and read the claims, and then they have to sort of guess what d- illicit drug might be the key oh, ingredient my in those items. So. <laughs> it, it's amazing. You know, it, it really is sort of a history of us from, from that, that period, that sort of huckster selling it out of the back of the wagon to, yeah. you know, what we talked about. You'd ask about the the wish book. Yeah. You know, um, one of my favorite writers that I, I became familiar with both in when I was at Georgia State, actually Cliff Kuhn really turned him on to him was Harry Cruz. Love Harry Cruz. Uh, you know, he's somewhere between, uh, Faulkner and Hunter S. Thompson. <laughs> and he is just amazing, but he grew up in Bacon County, Georgia, dirt poor, uh, sharecropper's son, and, uh, he tells the stories. His family would never hope to be able to buy the items in those books. Right. But you could wish about it, and the thing he did, he had, a uh, uh, a black neighbor named Willow Lee and they would basically sit on the porch with the catalog and would make up stories about these so-called perfect people. Oh, my goodness. Because he grew up in an area where, you know, folks had, were missing an eye or missing a tooth right. or a finger and have you a just scar. just kind of dealt with it and kept yeah. Going. yeah, and then he looks at this catalog of all these perfect people, and he and this other kid would make up stories. And he said that's how he learned to tell stories, was just making up stories about people in the Sears catalog. So, you know, even... Beyond, uh, you know, consumer goods, this thing became so much larger for people, particularly in the South that didn't have a whole lot to wish for. Yeah. (laughs) You know, they, wish was all they could do. Yeah. And and I think it became symbolic of that. So it was called Wish Book for years and years. Um, the Christmas catalog, I think, really took off in the 1930s. Uh, and it was a fairly small catalog, but it had the toys.
0: I think most of us that are in our age group have (laughs) such distinct memories of that eventually Mm -hmm. grimy and dog-eared wish book every year. Santa
1: Claus shopped at Sears. (laughs)
0: <laughs> Clearly, I mean, I vaguely recall asking a question along those lines of like, if I circle it in the catalog, how just, does Santa find out? Yep. And my parents did say something like, oh, he has a deal with Sears. Exactly. Like, you know, the way that parents will just make something up.
1: Exactly. Uh,
0: yeah, so, uh, so they, they, uh, I mean, Santa, you know, I could see him having some retail reach out. Yeah. Some of those elves have connections. Yeah. They're on the switchboard.
1: I did a presentation for the retirees group uh, a couple of years ago. And before I even started, I looked out and smiled at the audience of these, you know, 70, 80, 90-year-old people. And I said, I've just met Santa Claus. <laughs> uh-huh. You were Santa Claus because I lived in a rural area, a little tiny town in South Georgia. Moultrie, Georgia was where I grew up. And lived out in a very rural area. Uh, the nearest kids were a couple miles away. And being an only child, that Sears wish book, I spent a lot of hours with it. Was it was your and,
0: BFF. Yeah, absolutely.
1: <laughs> and a, school clothes, every fall, school clothes came from Sears. And then, of course, you would get the wish book in about October and start dog earing the pages and oh. circling things. I want this, two of these. And, yes, yeah, somehow Santa always found out. And
0: Thank goodness. <laughs> I mean, I think I told you when we first first met to talk about this about the year that Santa did me wrong, and he did not honor my request <laughs> for the strawberry shortcake snail cart. And I may have had a very uh, unattractive fit. Yeah. And then I scraped my money together and told my dad we have to go to Sears. Like I was scared there were there was going to be a run on snail carts. <laughs> we absolutely had to go immediately, if not sooner, and get my snail cart.
1: Yep. It was, it was everything. I mean, a lot of my, you know, I talked about my Star Wars toys. It, that was it. Oh yeah. It was the, you know, getting that package. Oh it was yeah. just Oh my God. Oh,
0: there was one year that my brother tore out the Star Wars pages oh, yeah. for him to just take for himself.
1: <laughs> I'll be honest. I'm when... sorry, sir. No. Yeah. <laughs> I, um, when I did my research the first time. I was in the catalog room of the archives and they had basically every catalog they had ever published. Yeah. They had a pristine copy on this wall and I pulled out the 78, 79, 80, 81. (laughs) Smelled the pages. (laughs) (laughs) Still smelled the same. Flipped to those that I had perused a hundred times as a kid and remember – not just the toys, but that advertisement, you know, that display, because they always had the coolest displays of toys. It's, it's sort of interesting. Um, I'd mentioned earlier about the farmer's market that was established here on the back lot of the property that operated from, uh, 1930 till about 1947. Uh, in 47, when they shut down the farmer's market, they turned that building, which is no longer there. It's right where Dancing Goats is located today. There was the farmer's market on that corner of Glen Iris and North Avenue. And, um, they shut down the farmer's market, turned it into a farm store. But every year for Christmas, they would take a portion of the farm store and would have this huge Christmas display. And there are some great photos of the Georgia State Special Collections Archives of this creepy clown on a, on a slide <laughs> out in front of that store and these kids playing on like the playground I'm sure it was probably something they sold in the catalog, a swing set or something. Yeah. But, but, yeah, they were always very conscious of that, you know, that Christmas thing. It always reminds me of the scene from A Christmas Story where they're sort of glued to the window yeah. looking at all the wares for that year's Christmas season. So, yeah, I mean, it's – I still think about it, those wish books a lot. Oh, yeah. Especially this time of year. It just –
0: Exactly. It's like <laughs> – it's good. We have good timing to do this interview because it's a nice lead-in to Perfect. the holidays. Perfect. And – I. Now I am going to think about the Elliot Ness level raid that I staged to get those pages out of my brother's room. He was a lot older than me. It was not okay. It was a very, um, a very brave act on my part. But you can't
1: take those. <laughs>
0: I need to look at size noodles. There was something along those lines. So I was pretty chagrined about the whole situation. That's great. Jerry, thank you so much. You're very welcome. Oh my gosh, you're just amazing. Oh, thank you. Uh, I appreciate it. Where can people find you?
1: Uh, well, I, uh, like I said, I'm at Duluth High School. You can <laughs> reach me there. Just call the <laughs> yeah, just send me send me an email. Uh, you can find me on Facebook, uh, Jerry Hancock. Uh, if you need to email me, Jerry underscore Hancock at yahoo.com. I'm pretty accessible. Uh, shoot me a line, um, and uh, hopefully this book thing will materialize. We're uh, right now; it's being reviewed by Princeton Press, Princeton Architectural Press, and uh, I do know that uh, the executives of Jamestown are pretty excited about it as well. So I'm certain that it's going to come along at some point with a, a pretty a big bang. Just a matter when it all yeah, circulates. and it's yeah. This is the whole business aspect of it, and this is the part I'm not real fond of. But you know we've we've done a few edits here and there, and uh, trying to get copyrights on. Pages, you'd mentioned earlier about you know, how hard it is to do corporate yeah. uh, research in it. It's very difficult to find anybody at Sears to give you a concrete answer on anything, right. if you can even get them to answer a phone, because there's so many of those offices are empty now. Yeah. And so we're really struggling with trying to reach out to Sears and get permission to use certain images and things. But we've got a great collection of historical images in this essay, and then, of course, Blake's photography is just astounding. So beautiful cool. to to watch the transition of the building and the pages. It'll be, I believe, it's going to be more of an architectural book, sort of coffee table style book. But uh, yeah, we've uh, we've got a lot of lot of optimism for it. So. I'm
0: excited. Keep us posted, Absolutely. so we can share that info. Uh, and then we will uh, we'll reach back out to you and get the whole scoop when it all comes to Sounds fruition. Sounds good. Thank you so much. You're very welcome.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So I am still sort of reeling from the revelation that catalog shopping was so impactful to people who were often discriminated against. And I actually feel a little bit foolish for never having thought of that before. Yeah, you and I try really hard to broaden our perspectives uh, and, and to, to listen to people whose experiences are different from ours. Yeah. Um But at the same time, like, we're always going to be limited by our own Experiences, Yeah. And so I, like you, had not thought of that before. No, it so blew my mind and, and really kind of opened my eyes to a whole reason that catalogs had a benefit to people that I just had never considered. Which I really do feel foolish for not considering because I'm like that person that likes to shop online because I don't like going into stores. So you would think I could have put two and two together, but I didn't. <laughs> Uh, So we wanted to say many, many thanks to Jerry Hancock for spending time with us and sharing his impressive breadth of knowledge. Little did I know you could be a Sears scholar, but also that Sears had like its own archive and their own sort of sense of scholarship around their history. Uh, and we will, as promised in the episode, keep listeners posted on his book project as it progresses. So I have his contact info. Hopefully we'll see more of him and we will keep you in the loop. Do you also have some listener mail for us? I do. It's a follow-up to a previous listener mail. So as our listeners... May recall, I had a, a, delighted freak out not so <laughs> long ago when we got this amazing parcel from a listener who I could not make out their name, but it was original copies of Le Mode illustre from France, uh, from the late 1800s and early 1900s. And I was just wowed. And we got an email shortly after that episode aired where the, the gifter, uh, revealed themselves. Uh, her name is Emmanuel. And then she said she had a follow-up parcel coming. Oh, my goodness. So uh, it's basically our early Christmas gift <laughs> and care package. And it, it was really amazing. So she said that the first one had been a spur-of-the-moment thing. So then she uh, she was so delighted with our enthusiastic reception that she did a much more organized approach to the next one. And it was amazing. She found in a secondhand bookshop a bunch of mod illustres to sort through. And so what we ended up with... Uh, is one issue from every year ranging from 1899 to 1909. There are a couple of years missing that just she couldn't find. Um, but they're in amazing shape. And one of the really, really beautiful things that we got is that some of them are printed using the pochoir method. Like they're special editions that have actual gold that highlights some of the illustrations in them. They're incredible. Um, nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so, uh. Here's the other cool thing. There are four issues that she sent that has what she says is a surprise for me, which is great. They have original sewing patterns. Um And she wrote – she's very cute because she gets me, clearly. She's like, you read that right. Breathe. Please don't cry. So, yeah, they're basically like pieces that you have to put together. Luckily, I have done this many, many times, and I, I have the skills. I had to figure out a way to copy them because I don't want to take them apart. And then there is a really interesting one, the the 1915 issue that she sent – really evidences that the war is happening and that dresses are getting simpler and shorter and they're really, really amazing. So it was just, it's the most amazing parcel from an incredible... I mean, what a generous and lovely and thoughtful person. Emmanuel, we like you heaps. They absolutely did put a huge smile on my face. I actually haven't gotten to go through them carefully. It's been kind of a busy time of travel and holidays and, and work being a little bit busy and us trying to get ready for more holidays and having more episodes ready than we usually would on a given week. So it's been a little bit maddening. It may be the beginning of the year before I really get to like go through them and, and enjoy them fully, but... Thank you. What an amazing, delightful, kind, thoughtful, I can't use enough adjectives to describe how much I just really appreciate the care and love that went into such a gorgeous parcel. So thank you a million times over. Uh If you would like to write to us and talk about how much you are over me blathering about exciting Fashion illustrations, that's fine. <laughs> you can do that at, uh, history podcast to house You can find us across the spectrum of social media as missed in history. That means Facebook.com slash missed in history on Twitter as at missed in history. Instagram, we're at missed in history, missed in history.tumblr.com, Pinterest.com slash missed in history. If you would like to uh, come to our parent site, which is HowStuffWorks.com, you can put almost anything you can think of in the search bar and you will get a plethora of interesting content to look at and peruse. If you would like to visit me and Tracy, you can do that at MistInHistory.com, where we have every episode of the podcast ever and show notes for every episode that Tracy and I have worked on together, as well as occasional other delights. So please come and visit us at MistInHistory.com and HowStuffWorks.com.